I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on. And today we're gonna be in two passages. The first one being Jeremiah chapter 29. And the second one is Philippians chapter four. Now this week, it's a little difficult because Jeremiah is in the Old Testament and Philippians is in the New Testament. So how do you go about finding them? Well, if you're in a physical Bible, just open up to the table of contents. Uh, You'll want to turn to the big section called the Old Testament, find the book of Jeremiah in that list of books, um, and then uh, find the New Testament and find Philippians in the list of, of books in that section. So Jeremiah chapter 29 and Philippians chapter four. If you're in an app, just pull down the list of the books of the Bible, um, and you're going to find Philippians is about two-thirds of the way, and Jeremiah is a, a little more than halfway down that list of books of the Bible. So Jeremiah chapter 29, Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> A few months ago, I had the really cool opportunity to go and uh, speak at a collegiate conference that was taking place here in our state. Uh, And one of the passages that I was uh, teaching on was Daniel, that Old Testament book about a guy named Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter one. Well, Daniel chapter one tells this, uh, the account of Daniel and some of his friends uh, and how they were captured by the Babylonians, uh, you know, taken to the capital of the, Babylonian Empire and how they were taught to serve the king of the Babylonian Empire, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, one of the things that happened in their training and everything that was going on is they were given new names. They were given Babylonian names. Daniel is a Jewish name. And so those Babylonian guys wanted to change the names. And so they changed Daniel's name to Belteshazzar. Yeah, kind of a weird, doesn't roll off the tongue very well. But the the crazy thing about this name is that Belteshazzar means uh, blessed be the king who serves the god Bel, this, this god that the Babylonians served. And so basically Daniel's name was referring to idol worship, but he was a follower of God. And so I was telling the story and telling the account of, uh, of how this name was given to Daniel and how at the time, from Daniel's perspective, it must have been a huge insult to his faith to be renamed this. And everywhere he went, people are saying, hi, Belteshazzar, hi, hey, Belteshazzar, how are you, Belteshazzar? And naming, saying his, that name and calling him by that name because it literally insulted his faith. And I I gave the illustration, it'd be like this. It'd be like if Canada invaded the United States and won, and they took all of the United States citizens and hauled them off somewhere else um, and and gave them different names that fit the the Canadian culture. And and the name that you were given was the name uh, that basically meant, I love Satan. Um, and how insulting that would be to you if you are a follower of Jesus and how you could, uh, how hard it would be to, to, to go anywhere and everybody waving at you saying, I love Satan. How are you? I love Satan. Oh, hi, I love Satan. How are you today? And how difficult that would be. <laughs> and after I started finishing that 
little section of what I was saying when I was finishing that up, I stopped for a moment and realized that uh, one of our leaders was recording the message in the back of the room. And, and I, I just laughingly, casually said, oh, now, uh, isn't this a great example of where someone could take something that I said out of the context of what I'm saying it in and use it against me. I said, how many uh, of you could record this and you know just clip it to where uh, I'm saying repeatedly, I love Satan and how you could use that against me because you're taking it out of the context. And we got a good laugh out of it. And uh, I still laugh and joke with the guy, the leader who was recording that session about how he's got the best blackmail material on me in the world. Um, but, do we do that with God's word? Do, do we sometimes take this book and read a sentence or maybe a verse without reading or understanding the verses and passages before and after it? And does that maybe sometimes change the intended meaning of that passage? I, I definitely think we do this, and I, that's what I want to talk about today. But before we go any further, let's talk about, let's read the passage that has been our theme passage through this entire series. It's Psalm 119, verse 105, and it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, you know, we read this verse, and if you read, go back and listen to the first two messages in this series, I unpack that verse. But basically, uh, why we are using this verse is because God's word is the direction guide. It's the guide for our lives. It gives us direction and help and encouragement. But if we want this book, this library of books, to be that help and that guide, we have to read it in a good way, in a godly way, in a, in a way that honors uh, the intent that God has for this book. Uh, and so today, I wanna talk about context, uh, which immediately leads me to today's big idea. Uh, if you've ever listened to one of my messages, you know that I don't generally give like three points that I want you to try and remember throughout the week. I, I just have one point. And I want you to take this point home. I want you to think about it this week. And I want you to make sure that you weigh it against scripture to make sure that it's true. Uh, and today's big idea is never read a verse out of its context. Never read a verse out of its context. Don't ever sit down and just read a verse without reading the verses that are before and after it. Because if you're reading just a verse, and you're not understanding what's happening or what's being said or what's being instructed before and after that verse, you're gonna miss the true meaning, the intended meaning of that verse. Read a verse in what we call context, in the midst of the verses, the passages, the, the ideas before and after it. So you understand the overall subject and message of that entire passage, not just of that one verse or that one little sentence. So let me give you some common examples of verses that we, as a culture, tend to take out of context. Let, let me have you turn to uh, that passage, Jeremiah 29. So Jeremiah 29, we're gonna start in verse 11. Let me unpack for you as you're looking for Jeremiah 29, 11. Let me unpack what's going on in the book of Jeremiah. 
because last week we talked about how it's important to understand the historical context, the what's going on in history and what's going on in the culture and, and all of those things. So historically, Jeremiah is in the Old Testament, which is uh, all of the events and the writings that happened before the birth and life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, and Jeremiah... Uh, is in a unique setting. You see, Jeremiah lived most of his time in the city of Jerusalem, but the city of Jerusalem at this time has been wiped out. It's been decimated because the Babylonians have come in, they invaded uh, Israel, Judah and uh, the city of Jerusalem, and they won. The Babylonians beat the Jewish people up, uh, and they ended up taking most of the Jewish people that lived in Judah and in Israel. Uh, Jerusalem, they ended up taking most of them and hauling them away and transplanting them basically in other countries in that Babylonian empire. But Jeremiah was one of the few people left behind in the city of Jerusalem. It's a city with no walls, no protection, very few houses. Uh, the temple's been destroyed. I mean, it's just rubble. And Jeremiah is a prophet that God speaks through to give instructions to these exiles that have been, uh, that have survived this invasion from the Babylonians. So look with me in Jeremiah 29. He's writing to these exiles, to the people um, who have been shipped away from the, the country and they've been resettled in other areas. Uh, so they're exiles, they're foreigners in a foreign land. Verse 11. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Now, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for very long or, or been in church or, or hang out with Christians, this verse may sound familiar. It may be a, a verse that you've seen posted uh, in, on a picture in someone's home or, or uh, quoted uh, when, in a prayer time or something like that. And, and many times we use it as a word of encouragement, a word of promise to us. It's, it's a passage that we many times will quote as if to say, God has a purpose and a plan for me, and it is a purpose for welfare and not for evil. It's, a, it's for hope and not despair and things like that. So we use it to encourage and build up. Um, we use it as a promise. God's gonna, gonna give me good things, and God's going to do this and this for me because he has these good plans for me. But I think it's important that we read this verse not isolated the way I just did, but that we read it in its context, specifically the verse right before it. Now remember, this is being written to exiles, people who are Israelites, who lived in Judah, uh, specifically maybe in the city of Jerusalem. They've been invaded and they've been kidnapped and transplanted as exiles into other countries. So they're not even living in their home country and they've been given this promise, but look at what the previous verse says, 29 verse 10. It says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
In other words, the city of Jerusalem. Then go into verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That kind of puts this particular promise and encouragement in a different light. You see, in verse 10, God is telling them, I've got a plan for you. That's what he says in verse 11. But the plan is going to take 70 years before I ever enact it. That changes the perspective of how we many times use Jeremiah 29, 11. You see, the letter is intended, this promise, this deliverance, this redemption is gonna happen. That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. But verse 10 says that it'll be 70 years before that deliverance and repent, uh, redemption even happens. So God isn't promising them immediate well, good welfare and, and hope. He's saying, you're gonna be stuck as exiles for 70 years and then I will deliver you and redeem you. That changes the perspective. But not only that, this promise is a very specific promise to the Israelite people who are exiled, not to Americans. It is a promise given to a people that were going through a unique situation in history. And this promise is unique to them. Now, am I saying that God does not have plans for you? That is not what I'm saying at all. And please go back. I have said probably dozens, if not hundreds of times, God has a plan for you. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things. So he does have a plan for you. And is that plan for good things? Well, we know from Romans chapter eight that, that God works all things out for our good, for those who love and follow Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, is the promise for welfare and not for evil to give a future and hope, those specific promises in Jeremiah 29, 11 are specific to the people who are exiled, who are longing to go back to their nation of Israel. But we, don't, we won't ever catch that part. We won't ever understand that part if we don't read the passage in its context. If we don't understand what's going on in the verses around it, and to allude to last week's message, to refer back to that, also if we, we won't understand it, if we don't understand what's happening historically at this moment in time. So it is important to read passages in context because Jeremiah 29 is to be understood that there is a promise of redemption and deliverance, but only after 70 years of exile and suffering. So are you willing to claim this promise in 2911? You can only do that if you're willing to embrace the suffering that is promised in 2910. And that's a hard pill to swallow. We must be cautious and be careful about how we use passages and never to use them out of context. Again, never read a verse outside of its context. Now, turn with me now to Philippians chapter four. 
Philippians chapter four, this is another a commonly used passage. Whether you're a church attender or not, you've probably heard this particular passage. I've seen it uh, in, you know, painted or posted in countless uh, football locker rooms or, or uh, different places where people want to claim victory or or the promise of winning or something like that. And so, Philippians four. Let's look at verse thirteen. It says, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." very common verse. We've, I've heard it used in multiple scenarios all of my life. But what's the context of Philippians 4.13? Well, let's go backwards and look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. And any and every situation, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now look at the next verse, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. What is Paul actually saying in Philippians 4.13. He's not saying that you can claim this verse before you go out in some competition that's claiming that you can do anything through Christ that gives you victory or will give you victory because you've got Christ's strength in you. That's not the claim at all. If you read all of chapter four, uh, specifically verses 10 through 14 and later, you're gonna recognize pretty quickly that Paul's not talking about gaining victory in things that are meaningless. He is claiming to have victory in understanding how to be content, whether things are good or whether things are bad. That's what Paul's actually arguing here. He's saying that God will give us strength to thrive, whether we're in good times or bad times, for the purpose of his mission will thrive so that we can do things for Christ, so that we can lead every generation to the life-changing hope of Jesus. He's not saying or applying this to meaningless or, or minor things. He's applying this to fulfilling the mission of Christ, remembering that Christ overcame death so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And we have strength in him when we believe in him and commit our lives to him, that whether things are good or bad, we have him behind us and he will strengthen us to get us through those difficult times and through the good times. That's what Philippians 4.13 is about. But we use this verse out of its context all the time. It's something that we continually miss use because we're not understanding what it actually means because we're not reading what is said before and after that passage. Now, before I go any further, let me just say a quick word that maybe you're listening right now and, and maybe you don't believe in Jesus. You've not committed your life to him and maybe you're going through a difficult time and you could use some strength. And let me just say, Christ wants to be your strength. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that if we would believe in him, we would not have to suffer eternal punishment, but that we could instead have eternal life. The fact of the matter is, is 
Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that even though he's the son of God, he came and died for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins and rescued from the consequences of your sins, which is that eternal punishment that I mentioned earlier. Not only that, three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that he's the son of God, declaring who he was and is, and gaining victory so that we can live in the promise that's given to us in Philippians 4.13, that Christ will see us through all things, good or bad, so that we can live for him. And if you don't believe in Jesus, but that strength sounds really good, then I want you to reach out to us. If you've got questions about Jesus, you wanna know more about Jesus, uh, you wanna understand or, or get a better understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, I want you to reach out to us. There's a, a link in the post of this video that will take you to the contact us page uh, on our website. I want you to click that and go over there right now, fill that form out and I'll reach out to you today uh, this week, and I would love to answer any questions you may have. I would love to talk to you about what following Jesus looks like. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Go click that link. Go over to the contact us page of our website and let us know uh, what questions we can answer about Jesus. Because Philippians 4.13 can apply to your everyday life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ, Jesus, he wants to be your strength. He wants to love you and provide for you, but you have to believe in him and commit your life to him. So, so reach out to us and we would love to answer questions and guide you in that. So never read a verse out of its context. Always read what comes before and after and understand. And like we said last week, uh, understand the history and the culture and all the things that are going on. Do your research, do the work. Don't be lazy or hasty in your reading, in your studying of God's word. Do the work to understand what it means. Don't take a verse out of context. There's another thing that I wanna talk about today though, and it's the difference between when the Bible prescribes something or describes something. So sometimes the Bible describes something that's happening. Maybe it's a narrative about some event that took place in the history of Israel or in, in the life and ministry of Jesus or in the life and ministry of the people who were the followers of Jesus after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven. There are all these narratives, these descriptions of different things. There are prayers uh, that are given uh, descriptively as, as people prayed them, they've been written down. But there's a difference between things that are described and something that's prescribed. When something's prescribed, it's something that the Bible clearly tells us to believe or to do. It's telling us clearly that we're supposed to embrace this belief or this action. A description is not the same as a prescription. It's not the same. You see, many people in history have been deceived into uh, bad beliefs or flat out wrong beliefs because they've embraced a description as a command to do or believe something 
and they've ignored the prescriptions about what the Bible actually says about those things. Uh, for example, let me unpack a, a, a one that's easy. Uh, we have this belief in Christianity called speaking in tongues. It's described a lot through the Bible. There's a lot given about speaking in tongues, especially in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. Uh, and so there's this idea, but there are many people and denominations that have really goofy and unbiblical beliefs about speaking in, tongue, in tongues. But where do those beliefs come from? Well, the book of Acts, uh, it's the fifth book in our New Testament. It tells the narrative about what happens with the followers, followers of Jesus after he's died, risen from the grave and ascended into heaven uh, and has given them the Holy Spirit to go out and do ministry. In the book of Acts, there are many times uh, where the Bible, that book describes people coming to know Jesus and then speaking in tongues after they come to believe in Jesus. For example, Acts chapter two, verse four says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there are many descriptions like this throughout the book of Acts. And as a result of these descriptions, Many people believe that everyone who is a Christian, everyone who believes in Christ should speak in tongues. But there's a big problem with that because there's a prescription given in 1 Corinthians 12 <clears throat> that says the opposite. So 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11 says, all these are empowered. In other words, the, it's been talking about spiritual gifts. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who gives them to each one individually as he wills. And there are other passages just like this one where it tells us that no one person will get any a specific gift that, that depending on what God's purpose and mission is for you, he will give you a set of gifts specifically designed for that purpose and mission. But for other people, they may have a different mission and will give it, be given a different set of spiritual gifts for that mission and purpose. And so the Bible's clear that when we talk about what it prescribes, the Bible's clear that not everyone will be given the gift of tongues, of speaking in tongues. But because people have embraced these descriptions found in Acts, they have misinterpreted what we find in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians 14, and that's dangerous. Uh, and there are many issues that we find in the Bible that are like this. For example, polygamy, the, the belief that you can marry multiple wives. There are many religions and, and people that embrace polygamy because it's described often in the Old Testament. It's described, but it is never prescribed. It's never commanded to live in polygamy, to have multiple spouses. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Old Testament and read every instance where polygamy takes place, almost every single one of them describes the negative as aspects of polygamy, that there's always uh, someone in that relationship 
dynamic that gets hurt or there's always someone who's loved and unloved or there's there's revenge or there's uh vengeance or there there's uh you know things that people do out of spite because the other spouse had something that they didn't have polygamy is never shed in a positive light in the old testament yet because it's described many people think that that's what god wants us to do when in fact the prescriptions given in the new testament speak against polygamy. Uh, another example, there are examples throughout the Bible uh, given where people are told to, to kill blasphemers or uh, a blasphemer is someone who, who speaks ill or spe speaks falsely about God. You know, and, and that was an extreme view in, in parts of the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, just because it's described does not mean that we adhere to that belief. And so there are things that we have to be cautious about when we study God's word. Are we reading something that is described or is it something that is actually prescribed by the Bible and we are told to believe or do it? A description is, does not equate prescription. We have to be cautious about how we look at passages and what they do and what they mean. I mean, let's be honest, just because something's described in the Bible or mentioned in the Bible does not mean that's what's God's, that is what God's will is for you. I mean, if we believe that, uh, then you know, look at the life of Jesus. By the time you're 33, you should have 12 very close friends and one of them should have betrayed you by now. That's a description in the Bible, <laughs> but we don't believe that. We don't apply it to our lives as a prescription of something we must believe or do, but that's exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. He had 12 very close followers whom we call the disciples. One of them, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot uh, betrayed him and, and delivered him to the rulers who ultimately hung him on a cross and killed him. And three days later, he rose from the grave. That's a description, not a prescription. So let me kind of wrap this up and give you some pointers here. Never read a verse out of context. And something I would add to that is don't hop around the Bible. Pick a book of the Bible and just read it. D don't, don't, I've seen a lot of people that say, well, I'm just going to open up and wherever I open up and put my finger, that's what I'm going to read. That is a terrible terrible idea. When you read God's word, pick a book and just read it. Understand the history, understand the culture, read everything within its context so that you can rightly determine what it's actually saying. Understand the difference between what the Bible is describing and what it's actually prescribing. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us read and study this library better. Join me now. Almighty God, we thank you so much for today. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we open your word and we study it. We pray that we would uh, listen to the guiding and the wisdom and knowledge of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to do the work, to understand the history and the, the culture, that we would read things in their context, that we wouldn't take them out of context and misunderstand them as a result of that. And Lord, help us to understand when we read your word, the difference between what's, what the Bible is describing to us and what the Bible is prescribing to us, telling us to do and telling us to believe. 
Help us as we read your word to grow and to become stronger followers of Jesus as we do so. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.